Hello, you're listening to From the Bibliophiles, a science podcast discussing how storytelling succeeds in communicating difficult science concepts. I'm your host and interviewer, Kenna Castleberry. If you're a new listener, you can find our podcast on all your favorite platforms, including Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and many other places. Be sure to give us a five-star review if you like our show. And if you enjoyed today's episode, like it and share it with your friends. Today's guest is Barbara J. King, Emerita Professor of Anthropology at William & Mary College. Barbara has written many books, focusing on animal behaviors and treatment as her main topics of research. I've spoken to Barbara many times over the last few years within my own research, developing an enjoyment of Barbara's writing style. The following interview with Barbara is about her newest book, Animals Best Friends, which focuses on ways that humans can help animals, whether they are in the zoo, pets, food, or lab subjects. Barbara's last few books have focused specifically on animal emotions, illustrating examples on how animals experience grief or joy. She is one of the big writers within this field of science, and her style is both compelling and engaging. I'd highly recommend reading Barbara's new book, Animals Best Friends, when you get a chance. You can find out more about Barbara's work at her website, www.barbarajking.com. That's www.barbarajking.com. And now, without further ado, let's hear what Barbara has to tell us about her new book. So your new book obviously focuses on ways that we can help the animals around us, such as, you know, pets or zoos. I was wondering, without giving too much of the book away, could you maybe tell us a little bit about some of the ways that we can help some of the animals around us? Sure. My new book really takes up five different contexts. So it's how to really apply compassion for animals in the wild, animals we live with, animals in zoos, animals in science laboratories, and also animals that are thought to be food. So I can really talk about any of these, but part of my message is for all of us to think about how to help animals that are not maybe the cute fuzzy mammals that we typically think about. So we may live with cats, dogs, bunnies, or we may live with horses. We may be interested in looking at chimpanzees, elephants, and orcas in documentaries. And there are ways, of course, to treat these animals compassionately, to help the animals we live with, to be kind to wildlife, to donate to help wildlife. So I'm asking us to think about how could we help spiders who live in our homes? How could we help the chickens and pigs that are caught up in the slaughterhouse, farm, factory system? So my responses and my suggestions are very specific to a lot of different contexts. I mean, one thing I talk about is how I developed a fear of spiders as a child. And like many people, I just crushed them with the tissue, didn't think about it for many years. And the more I learned about spider science, I would even say spider intelligence. The more I began to watch them and the more I began to really care about them. The same thing is true with animals I used to eat. So I would readily eat cheeseburgers, bacon. I don't do that anymore at all. And my call for compassion is not to say that everyone in the world needs to go vegan tomorrow, 
but rather that we can collectively make a pledge to eat as much as we can manage to make this pledge, depending on our circumstances, less meat, less dairy, less seafood. Because that's going to be an act of compassion, not only for animals, but for the earth. So those are some examples. No, it sounds like you've covered a broad area, and that's really, really nice to go through all these different sectors and then talk about everything so it's not just food focused or not just pet focused which is wonderful can you maybe expand and and talk a little bit about the research process for this book and and what that was like sure i have been writing a book about every three or four years for quite a while now and my most recent two prior books were about animal emotion animal personality uh, particularly animal grief and love and At a certain point, I realized that a large number of us who love animals really know now that animals think and feel. So what I wanted to do was research the process of what people out there are doing to make a difference and how we can apply that. So I talked to and or visited a lot of people who are making specific inroads for animals. For example, I spoke with a number of scientists who work very hard to publicize the fact that animals in science laboratories are actually not treated very well. There's a large segment of the public that thinks there's all these ethical oversight committees and processes, but in fact, they don't work well, animals suffer. And by being able to talk to experts in this area, I learned a lot and I interviewed a lot of people. I also visited zoos so that I could see the continuum of zoos I am skeptical of keeping many animals in zoos, but I also know that all zoos are not alike. So I would visit and or interview people at roadside unaccredited zoos or the zoos that are considered the top better zoos. So it was a process of travel and reading. And of course this was all done pre-pandemic so I could move around the country and do what I wanted to do, but lots and lots of reading and interviews. Of course, yeah. And as far as this book goes, compared to your previous books, this book has more of yourself in it and a personal stake that you talk about. Could you maybe expand on that and talk about maybe why you put more of your own story in this book? Yes, I did. I have found over the years that my writing style evolves. It becomes more personal and I hope more accessible. You know, when I was a graduate student and a young professor in anthropology, I was writing for other scientists and my mom, you know, the people like the the 15 people who would buy my books, I don't know. And it really became a joy and a pleasure to learn and practice how to write with storytelling, because I think that's what moves people to learn about particular animals. So in the last couple of books, I'd write about this particular monkey this particular octopus. And finally, I decided, well, I'm an animal too. Why not tell my story? And the book opens with some anecdotes about the years, this is now seven or eight years ago, when I was fighting a really nasty, aggressive cancer and getting over that period and how my husband finally was able to take a break and go travel and do some hiking on his own after he had taken care of me very well for a long time and how he got lost on the trail. And how that example of the compassion that people summoned to help him, search teams, dogs, helicopters, and this is a very scary experience in a national park in remote Utah. It opened me up to thinking about how 
we actually respond when animals need our help versus when people need our help. So I, I have been weaving those stories into the text, and I think that brings some immediacy to it, I hope. Yeah, absolutely. And just relatability as well, where people can understand your side of the story, which is wonderful. Your past two books have talked about animal emotions, animal feelings. I'm wondering, because animal psychology is still obviously going and and being researched, could you tell us a little bit about what you found for animal emotions for people who may not understand what that looks like? Sure. Yeah, this is actually my seventh book, so I've been at this for a while, but, but my my turn to thinking about animal emotion happened in the early 2010s. And there's a pretty large group of scientists now who are researching this so that we know exactly, in some cases at least, what the expression of animal emotion looks like. So this is an important distinction. We're not trying to read animals' minds or guess or anthropomorphize or lay our own feelings on top of other animals, but to look in the wild and in captivity at what they do and from these behavioral cues to build up a picture of the emotion that they're expressing. So my work, as I mentioned, has largely been in grief work. And really over the years, the number of species documented really reliably to express some kind of grief when a loved one dies is just mind blowing. You know, when I started out, it was like the usual suspects of big brain mammals. Like we were looking at whales and chimpanzees and elephants and that was quite interesting. But in the years right around and since I published that book, we know that animals from um, pig-like animals uh, called peccaries to giraffes to magpies to chickens and pigs express grief. So what we're looking for is a real change in behavior that some survivor animal expresses after the death of a loved one. So we see social withdrawal and a depressed posture or calling, wailing vocalizations or whatever. And I give that as an example because I think that it shows when we kind of stop and look at what animals are telling us, we find that contrary to cliche, they're not voiceless at all. Animals are telling us quite a bit and they're telling us about our emotion, their emotions. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. That's a very powerful thing to, to read that and say, oh, wow, they're just like me. You know, they're very relatable. As far as your current book coming out, do you think that your book will have an impact on how people see animals that they interact with or in zoos or pets or things like that and, and change their behavior possibly? I'm optimistic. I'm hopeful. And I say this because my previous work has found an audience when I wrote How Animals Grave, I was surprised by the number of letters people wrote to me explaining their own experiences with animal grave. And I gave a TED talk on the main stage in Vancouver in 2019 at the TED conference where I was able to talk about this. And I've had 3 million views of this talk and people writing to me. So the question is, okay, are they just listening or are they doing things differently? And I can only tell you that since my writing about animals considered to be food, I have quite a number of letters of people who say, you know, I don't eat pigs anymore, I don't eat octopus anymore. And what I'm really saying with this new book is that I too am, am far from perfect in my actions for animals, but it's kind of an aspirational journey where I think that we could all encourage each other. And I do feel that that works, that together our storytelling and our reflection is aspirational, sort of mutually aspirational. 
And I, I think that's a very important process. And I see a number of scientists doing this very effectively. And I, I hope that I'm one of them. What was maybe one of your favorite chapters to write about in this book or, or something that maybe surprised you when you were writing this, this book for your next publication? Yeah, favorite in a way, was the animals in science laboratories, but I qualify that because it was also heartrending. And I think I'm suggesting that it's a favorite because it changed me the most in how I think about animals in laboratories. I did research and I'm continuing to do research on some individual animals so that it's not just, okay, we know that there's monkeys and rats and mice in laboratories, but for example, writing about as I'm doing in an essay, this isn't exactly in the book, but it's a follow-up essay to the book, about a monkey named Cornelius who's in a laboratory in Wisconsin for over 10 years and what he's gone through, how he was tattooed at eight days old and taken from his mother or his mother died, it's not clear, and the things that he suffered. And why is it favorite? It's a favorite because I know through my research that there's now incredibly effective scientific methods that don't use animals that help human health. In fact, that I believe are better science, and better methods. And I speak here about things like organs on a chip, the little 3D organoids, or human uh, tissue cell cultures, or very low dose um, human testing with, with drugs that one wants to test on humans in extremely small doses. But there's a whole number of them that I write about. And just like I'm feeling very optimistic with plant-based foods in the future for animals, I'm also optimistic for these new methods of science that are better science that are better for animals. So that was really eye-opening and, and, and helpful for me.